Hello, and welcome to the all-new Shakespeare and Company podcast with me, Adam Biles, literary director here at The Bookshop. If you enjoy these conversations and would like to spend even more of 2022 at Kilometre Zero in Paris, you can now subscribe for just €3 Euros a month. For that, you'll get regular bonus episodes, hand-picked classic interviews from our archives, as well as early access to complete chapters from friends of Shakespeare and Company, Read Ulysses. You can now sign up directly in Apple Podcasts or for users of all other podcast apps through Patreon. Links to both are available in the show notes. All money raised through these subscriptions goes to supporting Friends of Shakespeare and Company, the bookshop's non-profit, created to fund our non-commercial activities, from the Upstairs Reading Library to the Writers in Residence programme to our charitable collaborations and our free events. We're very grateful for your support. The Last White Man, Mohsin Hamid's startling new novel, holds up a mirror to our world. Except, as one might expect from the author of Exit West, this is a shattered mirror, and Hamid rearranges the shards so that the society reflected back at readers is a recognisable but heightened and clarified version of their own. One morning, Anders, a white man, wakes up to find that his skin is now dark, with no indication as to how this has happened or why now, why to him. And so, like a Gregor Samsa for our times, Anders must reckon with this metamorphosis, how it changes the way he looks at himself, how others look at him, and how he looks at others looking at him. The Last White Man somehow feels at once like an age-old story and something strikingly new, and, much as happens to Anders, causes readers to reflect upon the preconceptions and prejudices that structure our lives. I'm delighted to say that Mohsin Hamid joins us today to discuss it. Mohsin, welcome to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. Thank you, Adam. Um, I suppose where I would like to begin is, as I referenced in the introduction, um, with this idea of kind of uh, metamorphosis literature, um, because I think uh, it feels when 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 sort of explaining the the concept of um, of the Last White Man, it feels very much that you're kind of writing into um, not necessarily an established genre, but in a, an established form in a way, this kind of moment where the lead character, the protagonist wakes up and something about them or something about the world has uh, dramatically uh, transformed. Did you refer to any of the the classics of this form as you were figuring out how to, to structure The Last White Man? I've always been a fan of... of early and mid 20th century modernist literature. And I would put Kafka in that category, but also very much writers like Camus, Virginia Woolf, Calvino, uh, mm. above all perhaps Jorge Luis Borges, mm. um, uh, even Nabokov. And, uh, and I think that uh, those writers were writing, of course, in a time that once again seems quite similar to ours, a uh, time of enormous technological change, of rising totalitarianism and authoritarianism, of the threat of war and conflict. And, uh, uh, and, and so uh, I think our historical moment feels not so divorced from the modernists. And certainly uh, as a form of literature that's interesting to me, um, uh, the modernists remain you know, one of the bedrocks upon which I've sort of built my own writing. Uh, the one thing I would say, though, is that um, is that I think that uh, uh, the notion that we construct our fictions out of our own imagination, that we readers are taking this source code that doesn't look like the world and creating a fiction out of it, that even, mm -hmm. quote unquote, realistic fiction is not actually realistic um, because the reality that we uh, purport to, uh, by consensus, inhabit um, mm -hmm. isn't actually what we imagine it to be. I think that yeah. that principle feels very valid today, um, and and I think it's it, it's it's uh, it's something that I certainly lean into and play with in my own writing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Also, I guess that that concept of sort of the waking up and finding the world transformed. I mean, it's something which you know people may have experienced uh, in their lives. Some people before. Some some people would have, some people wouldn't, and yet in the past few years, what with the the pandemic, in a sense, it must be one of those sensations which suddenly became sort of almost kind of overly familiar to uh, to so many people around the world. 
Yes, I think that um, that the pandemic has served to um, tear uh, a kind of hole in this uh, illusion that we live in a well-ordered um, world where we can expect what will happen next and things will follow a, partic- a, a particular predictable course. Mm-hmm. And in that sense, uh, I think we are open to the fantastic and the fantastical uh, in a way that that maybe um, we imagined we wouldn't be at this point. Not mm-hmm. we would be these, you know, complete rationalists, um, and we would have a predictable sort of trajectory. I think I think the combination of things being unpredictable and also appearing to be inexplicable uh, mm-hmm. gives rise to a to a certain uh, stance on the part of the, the reader, which certainly in in the last white man is something that I've tried to um, uh, tried to allied into that that we mm-hmm. will be prepared for a world where things change like they do in the novel. One morning Anders, a white man, woke up to find he had turned a deep and undeniable brown. This dawned upon him gradually and then suddenly, first as a sense as he reached for his phone that the early light was doing something strange to the color of his forearm. Subsequently, and with a start, as a momentary conviction that there was somebody else in bed with him, male, darker. But this, terrifying though it was, was surely impossible. And he was reassured that the other moved as he moved, was in fact not a person, not a separate person, but was just him, Anders, causing a wave of relief. For if the idea that someone else was there was only imagined, then of course the notion that he had changed color was a trick too an optical illusion or a mental artifact born in the slippery halfway place between dreams and wakefulness, except that by now he had his phone in his hands and he had reversed the camera and he saw that the face looking back at him was not his at all. Anders scrambled out of his bed and began to rush to his bathroom, but calming himself, he forced his gait to slow, to become more deliberate, measured, and whether he did this to assert his control over the situation, to compel reality to return through sheer strength of mind, or because running would have frightened him more, made him forever into prey being pursued, he did not know. The bathroom was shabbily but comfortingly familiar. The cracks in the tiles, the dirt in the grouting, the streak of dried toothpaste drip on the outside of the sink. The interior of the medicine cabinet was visible, the mirror door askew, and Anders raised his head and swung his reflection into place before his eyes. It was not that of an Anders he recognized. He was overtaken by emotion, not so much shock or sorrow, though those things were there too, but above all, the face replacing his filled him with anger, or rather, more than anger, an unexpected, murderous rage. He wanted to kill the colored man who confronted him here in his home to extinguish the life animating this other's body, to leave nothing standing but himself, as he was before, and he slammed the side of his fist into the face, cracking it slightly, and causing the whole fitting, cabinet, mirror, and all, to skew like a painting after an earthquake has passed. Anders stood, the pain in his hand muted by the intensity that had seized him, and he felt himself trembling, a vibration so faint as barely to be perceptible but then stronger, like a dangerous winter chill, like freezing outdoors, unsheltered. And it drove him back to his bed and under his sheets, and he lay there for a long while, hiding, willing this day just begun. Please, please, not to begin. And in fact, sometimes I think of those moments in, for example, horror movies, when, uh, you know, you're being terrified by something, and then the explanation for that thing is given and suddenly it loses in a sense all of its uh all of its force in a way like the sort of the 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 inexplicable in some way i think carries a kind of a greater emotional heft uh in storytelling than uh if something is kind of detailed oh and this is why it happened and this is how it could be uh reversed for example well things remain profoundly inexplicable um mm-hmm. i think that uh, uh as the pace of technological change accelerates, mm-hmm. uh, uh, 
technology itself begins to take on uh, magical aspects. Um, I remember once speaking to the CEO of this company that uh, was, was developing new materials and they had all of these, uh, uh, I'm sort of imagining these test tubes in a giant warehouse and they would fa fa mm. uh, fire these sonic vibrations to these, these um, test tubes causing a single drop of liquid to pop up and that would be picked and sampled and the AI algorithm was running all sorts of tests to come up with new materials. And in this futuristic um, uh, lab, um, the sort of 21st century version of, of what one would imagine to be sort of a uh, Dr. Frankenstein's lab, um, mm -hmm. the, the most interesting thing for these incredibly accomplished scientists who were working uh, on, this, on this project uh, was that the machine was working uh, in a way that um, didn't follow from a human hypothesis standpoint. In other words, it wasn't conjecturing mm -hmm. that if you make these tweaks, the following thing will happen because this is why it'll happen. Instead, it was uh, following a different form of logic um, right. and trying different experiments and tinkering its way towards breakthroughs. Mm -hmm. And and you know the the idea that we will soon potentially live in a world where there are scientific breakthroughs that work. But the reason for their working will not be understood, even by yeah. our most sophisticated scientific thinkers, um, does feel a lot like a world of magic. Uh, yeah. You know, I, 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 can, I can probably venture to explain how you and I are speaking right now, but my, <laughs> but my explanation is, 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 is fairly inadequate. And, you know, if in the future you and I will be speaking without any visibly evident technology, um, it certainly will feel like magic. And this already feels like magic. And, and so my last novel, Exit West, which had these doors that appeared, um, mm -hmm. lapsing distance, to me felt like uh, that those were a fantastic, fantastical invention, but um, were very much true to our present technological, uh, I think, cultural reality. Uh, yeah. The same way, I think, in The Last White Man, the idea is to have this element um, that may seem fantastical, but at an emotional level, doesn't feel itself to be. It feels mm -hmm. entirely believable. We can imagine our status changing and how we're yes. perceived uh, uh, changing. Um, and I think everybody now inhabits a world where that occurs. One, one, of, one aspect of which, of course, is social media, where um, one's reputation or, or other people's perception uh, can change you know, seemingly overnight. So mm -hmm. I think we inhabit a world now where um, the emotional landscape of the last night, white man feels very plausible to many people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, you put me in mind of um, a couple of things, which was uh, I remember reading the uh, the novel by um, uh, Putipi, a small country by Gail Fay, which takes place during um, the uh, the Rwandan genocide. And one thing that became very clear while reading that was how because it's essentially um, autobiographical, was how as a little boy, there was no sense of this kind of this difference in uh, two different people living uh, alongside each other. And then suddenly when it became a thing, it took on this kind of this power and this sort of destructive force that, you know, that led to led to millions of people being killed. And it's sort of like this, in a, in a sense, this sort of this, 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 this fiction taking on a, uh, uh, a, a reality is, you know, it's not something which, uh, which is, uh, which is alien to our world. Absolutely. I think, I think we author our reality constantly and it's mm -hmm. also being authored, you know, for us and to us. Mm -hmm. I'm also reminded of, uh, Primo Levi's, uh, Sequestro Un Uomo, uh, mm -hmm. you know, uh, if this is a man or, or I think Survival yeah. in Auschwitz is the translation in America. Uh, I'm not sure about the UK translation, but, um, it, it, it's interesting because that book begins um, with uh, our narrator, um, who is Jewish in Italy uh, at, at the beginnings of, of, of the Holocaust, mm -hmm. um, perplexed that he's being seen as Jewish, that this mm -hmm. matters so much, because he doesn't particularly think of himself uh, so much in, in terms of, of, of being Jewish. You know, he's a... He has a particular profession and he's a man and he's an Italian and, and these are the things that he thinks matters. Mm -hmm. And, and in a sense, his, his Jewishness and the meaning, the terrible meaning of, 
of that Jewishness in this context is authored upon him. And I think that um, that, that, that feeling um, that uh, who we are and what it means, uh, that it can be authored upon us is something that, that seems to be growing for a great many people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's um, let's talk a little bit about um, Anders. Before we get into his character, I do have to ask you about the the choice of name because I um, I don't know if this would have the same resonance for everybody. But the moment I saw the first name, I was put in mind of the only other Anders that I'd heard of, which was Anders Bering Breivik, yes, the uh, the, the mass murderer, the um, um, you know the the, the, the shooting on the, the Norwegian island. Um, and I'm just cu- curious whether that was sort of uh, particularly given the subject matter of the book, whether there was some sort of mischief or other sort of uh, reason for, for the choice of this name. Well, it's interesting. Um, you know, Anders uh, uh, is a name that, that means manly in some languages. Mm. Um, okay. and, uh, uh, or in a sense, even man. And, uh, and so, um, you know, for me, uh, you know, Anders is the same root as, as um, uh, Andrew, for example. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and, uh, and I, I liked this name that, in a sense, the name of a man being really just man uh, mm-hmm. or, or, or man-like, um, but also coming from a what feels like a linguistic tradition that partakes of a kind of quote unquote whiteness. Mm. In other words, for me, Anders meaning manly, meaning man, um, and sounding like it comes from this ur whiteness was a very mm. tempting combination. Um, it, you know, it, 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 it sort of placed it, it it blurred a little bit the geography of what we were talking about. Mm-hmm. You know, where exactly is this happening? Um, but but brings with it certain connotations. In, in much the same way that in the Rutten Fundamentalist, um, not in Chinggis's name so much, although Chinggis's name has has its own particular reasons, but in Chinggis's manner of speaking, um, I wanted to give Chinggis a voice in Rutten Fundamentalist that felt like some people's preconceptions of what Islam was, sort of mm-hmm. formal. Um, vaguely anachronistic, you know, potentially menacing. Uh, in the same way, I wanted Anders's name to feel uh, like the situation that Anders was in, um, mm-hmm. to, to evoke a kind of whiteness and to also um, be a container for really a very simple concept, which is that you know this is a man that he is yeah. he is manlike. Yeah. And so, um, in a moment, um, I'll ask you uh, to sort of to introduce Anders. Well, not actually at the moment we meet him, because at the moment we meet him, it is the moment when he wakes up and discovers that his his skin has changed colour. But sort of to to present him maybe as he was, as, as he saw himself, sort of the night before um, before all of this happened, like his, his situation in life. Because I think it's very interesting when once you have a concept uh, like this, you know, somebody waking up and their skin has changed colour, who you then decide to follow this uh, event happening to. And so could you talk a little bit about why, how you kind of came up with the, the, the character of Anders, describe it a little bit for our listeners who haven't read the book, and also why this particular character felt like the right one to you to, to go through this particular journey? So on Anders, the one thing I just wanted to um, say before we talk about the character, uh, still connected to the name, is that, is that Anders, of course, has a Norse, Nordic, sort of sound to it. There's an English version. There's also Andreas um, and, and the Greek roots of, of the name as well, which again mean manly. And so there's various classical traditions that, that Anders as a name I feel touches upon. And as far as Anders the character, in some ways he touches upon a number of different, you could say, classical male traditions as well. Uh, you know, he is a man who uh, uh, works in a gym, who works with his body, um, he is a man whose economic situation is not precarious, but certainly not stable mm-hmm. uh, or particularly stable. Uh, and he is somebody who has been grappling with various challenges. He found it difficult to read in school. He's um, uh, not exactly estranged, but, but has some difficulties in his relationship with his father. 
his mother has passed away. Uh, and so and so he is a young man um, encountering his share of challenges, uh, trying to live um, a good life as a man, which is an inherently challenging proposition, when suddenly um, this new uh, aspect of his existence uh, comes upon him, that you know he, he ceases to be recognizably white. And, mm-hmm. and, and he experiences this uh, as a major blow, uh, mm-hmm. that it, life wasn't necessarily easy for him beforehand. In many ways, it was very challenging, uh, losing his mother, having this unwell father, not being economically very secure. Um, and on top of that, to have this, this, um, this change befall him is something he really struggled with, at least for the beginning of the book. Mm-hmm. And what, one thing that interests me was the kind of, I guess there's the sort of the two-tiered level of his reaction. So there is, one might say, his initial emotional response. And then I guess his the changes in his behavior as he goes out into the world and interacts with um with other people or or even just sort of interacts with the world as he he previously knew it uh, but beginning with that initial emotional response um he 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 as you describe him he he fills with anger or in fact an you write an unexpected murderous rage um and in in fact uh, another and another moment you write uh, he wanted to kill the colored man who confronted him here in his home um that i thought was just a really sort of startling uh and quite sort of unexpected um response in a way that you know it wouldn't be uh it wouldn't be confusion it wouldn't be um you know sort of bewilderment but there was this sort of yeah this is this kind of this anger and rage and yet at the same time it felt um sort of in a sense i guess depressingly depressingly accurate well i think that um you know, Anders is experiencing different things at the same time. Uh, he's experiencing a sense of complete bafflement and disorientation. You know, what is this? Why is it happening? Why is it happening to me? You know, what am I now? Um, he's experiencing a sense of threat, uh, a sense of, of being uh, vulnerable, uh, mm-hmm. uh, of being uncomfortable, of unsure of how he needs to conduct himself. Uh, and when he goes into the world, he feels that very strongly. Um, and uh, he, he's also feeling, uh, in a sense, he's feeling wronged. Um, mm. He feels that something has been taken from him uh, unfairly, unjustly, undeservedly. And, uh, and in a sense, um, he's feeling this, this incredible anger at, um, at, at his own self being supplanted in this way. And so, and so, all of these things are battling within him, and 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 his, um, and, you know, he will experience sorrow, he'll experience confusion, but he also experiences anger, and 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 the emotions that you refer to in that particular passage are very much about that anger, um, and his reflection uh, uh, is in that moment the where his anger is directed, because um, of course that that reflection is him, but to Anders it doesn't yet feel like him. It still mm-hmm. doesn't feel like another person. And so he has this reaction of, of rage towards someone else. Um, uh, but of course, we know that someone else is, in fact, Anders himself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then once he goes out into society, we notice suddenly a change in, his, in the way he moves about and the way he uh, responds to others. So uh, there's a moment where you say, like, he forced his gait to slow to become more deliberate and measured. Um, and another moment where um, you write that he became quieter than he used to be. And likewise, that he had been recast as a supporting character on the set of a television show. Um, and this kind of reorienting of his um, of his position, I suppose there's, there's kind of a, a double layer of it, uh, because there's there's at once him sort of understanding, I suppose, what it means to be a person of color in the town in which he lives and how, you know, there are certain adaptations of behavior that are required but he also can't escape the fact that he is he has this kind of this background this upbringing as a a white man so all of his concepts of how a a person of color would act and would move through the world 
are still kind of shaped by uh, these kind of, you know, uh, several decades of um, of lived experience. And I'm curious, as a sort of, as you were writing this, was that a sort of a difficult, uh, two different, was it difficult to balance those two different, um, those two different perspectives? No, I think in some ways, Anders has um, a kind of immigrant experience. Mm-hmm. And, um, it, you know, if, if one moves from one place to another place, and if one has occupied a position sort of higher up on the hierarchy, uh, the socioeconomic hierarchy where one is moving from, um, and lower where one is moving to, um, mm-hmm. this, this sort of uh, realization or, or uh, this sort of change is something that many um, immigrants are gripped with. You know, you no longer mm-hmm. speak a language. You can't be funny. You can't be charming. Yeah. yeah. Well, people don't just necessarily smile when you speak to them, or uh, they're not necessarily pleased when you walk in the door. And mm-hmm. um, and you haven't changed. Uh, and yet, somehow, everything around you has changed. And so, Anders, in a sense, has become an immigrant. Um, uh, but he is an immigrant where, in the place where he already lived. So he is able to see himself um through eyes that aren't always kind and mm-hmm. uh and he's he's caught between trying to show that he hasn't changed that he is still the old anders and finding that very difficult to do in fact mm-hmm. impossible um uh, the naturalness that it required and the sort of um entitlement to being treated in a certain way just can't be insisted upon um, and at the same time, while he is trying to still be uh, and have other people see him as how he was, um, he is uh, he's changing. Um, mm-hmm. He is changing because of how other people see him, because of how he sees himself, and because of how he sees other people seeing him. So, mm-hmm. um, so even though he is the same man, very quickly he isn't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's a, there's a really interesting moment when um, he, he uh, thinks about another uh, another man that works at the gym, and this was a a person of color who he's not really uh, the the cleaning guy, I think it is, and he's not really had uh, much kind of um, contact with him before. Um, and and so he makes a, a sort of an effort, sort of a movement to um, to to sort of a, sort of approach him, to understand him, to sort of to 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 build up, I guess, some sort of fraternity between them, and yet it's it's a it's a very very awkward moment. In fact, and that, and in read that, it sort of it made me understand. Okay, this is still um, you know, much as he is being seen by other people as uh, a person of color, the way in which he is interacting with other people of color still feels very much um, sort of beset by by whiteness, I suppose. Well, I think, you know, um, uh, in a sense, race is this imaginary concept. We, we've imagined it into existence. Now, the fact that it has been imagined into existence doesn't mean that it, it doesn't exist. I mean, you know, once you imagine this thing to exist, it can be incredibly powerful and destructive. Um, but it is something that we've kind of made up. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, and, and there's a sort of collective imagination that sustains it. Uh, and so, and so even when that collective imagining of race is destabilized, when more and more people um, cannot be distinguished really meaningfully uh, in terms of race. Um, Mm -hmm. And in theory, one has arrived at a place that is getting close to a situation where, um, uh, you know, there is no visible race. Uh, Even then, there is, of course, a difference between those who imagined it into existence and, and participate in that imagining um, uh, in one way, um, mm-hmm. and those who felt they had it was sort of imagined upon them uh, and experienced it in a different way, and and uh, and simply losing this this differentiation, uh, the ability to apply race um, mm-hmm. doesn't correspond to losing um, the lived experience of it up till that mm-hmm. moment. And so and so, Anders in a way is united with this cleaning guy. He thinks because. Um, uh, you know, because now, of course, uh, people are looking at them as, as belonging to one category. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, and yet he's, he's, he's also, um, quite far removed, uh, uh, from that cleaning guy. And, uh, and so, and so 
uh, in a sense, it's it's Anders is imagining that they they have entered a shared world, and perhaps they have, but um, but they've entered it from from very different directions, and Anders is still trying to figure out how to make that make sense of that. Mm. One um one person who shares Anders' world in a in a, in a slightly different way is Una. Um, and so when we when we encounter Una at the start, she is a sort of a former high school sweetheart of uh, of Anders, who has essentially become a sort of uh, you know an, an occasional girlfriend. And you know the, neither of them seem at the start uh, particularly sort of committed or into the relationship. It seems almost sort of a relationship of convenience in a way. And yet, interestingly, as these changes occur to Anders, and as the world around them starts changing their relationship evolves and consolidates in i think quite a um quite a surprising and uh an interesting way so I just wondering would you be able to talk a little bit about what it is that uh acts as a sort of a sort of a consolidatory force uh between and uh, between anders and una as the as the world changes around them so Anders and Una had a casual relationship in high school and, um, and they're having a sort of uh, relationship of convenience um, as a novel begins. But underneath this relationship of convenience, you know, is, um, are some striking uh, points of connection and above all, um, an experience of loss uh, that, is, that is very profound in both of their cases. Uh, Anders has lost his mother uh, and his father is very ill and he's in the process of, of, of uh, losing his father. Uh, Una has lost her her father and her brother, uh, her brother who's died just before the novel begins, um, and is worried about the potential loss of her mother. And so these are two people grappling with loss. And over the course of the novel, what happens is as their surfaces um, become unrecognizable and as the uh, town around them to a certain extent becomes unrecognizable, uh, they actually begin to recognize the reality of one another more and more. So there is um, there is an increased depth to their connection that proceeds as the superficial is sanded away. And Anders and Una really come to see each other properly over the course of the book. And, and the relationship um, becomes a very different kind of relationship. Yeah, 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 and also I guess that um, that concept of loss is an important one because um, I suppose when you have experienced the kind of loss that both Anders and Una have, then perhaps then the loss of something insubstantial, something fictional, like this uh, concept of whiteness, however much that may affect your your position in society and how people uh, respond to you, I guess it's not on the same level as the kind of deeply intimate and uh, deeply sort of uh, destructive loss of, uh, of losing a member of your, of your close family? Well, it is and it isn't. You know, I think that, I think that um, the novel very much is a novel of loss. Uh, mm. it's, it's also a novel of birth because something is born and something is, is, is being lost. But it is very much a novel of loss. And I th- it seems to me that, um, that loss is something we are not grappling with sufficiently in our current mm-hmm. cultural historical moment. Um, uh, you know, so much of our politics is about going back to the past, uh, yes. past glories. And whether that is um, sort of a, a, a golden age of Islam or, you know, Britain before uh, immigrants arrived or America, <laughs> you know, before the uh, changes to immigration law in the 1960s, that was a much more white majority country. Um, uh, or, or a Turkey under Erdogan that's more truly Turkish, or a India under Modi, which is more truly Hindu. There are all these appeals that are sort of to a, a, an imagined better and more pure time. And those are very potent. And so what the novel really wrestles with is, um, you know, how do we reckon with loss? And, mm-hmm. and certainly, we don't reckon with loss by ignoring it. So the novel tries to, um, in a sense, honor what Anders and Una and their families think they are losing 
Um, not honor it because the concept of whiteness uh, is an honorable concept, um, but honor it because uh, when we bury someone, when we, when we bury something, there is an entire, I think, uh, ritual and uh, emotional, uh, even spiritual. Uh, you don't need to believe in, in a spirit to uh, understand the, the the spiritual um, nature of 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 grieving of burial uh, of all these human rituals and so many cultures today in a sense even even that act uh, right. professionalized and outsourced and sanitized and um, and so and so the novel tries to really get into that to get mm-hmm. into the dying of something and the burial yeah. of something and the mourning for something. Um, not because it wishes to, you know, reanimate and bring back the undead, um, but because uh, I think to move to what comes next, a proper uh, reckoning and mourning is also required. And mm. at, at the moment, all over the world, we are being told to rage against the dying of the light, um, rather than to. Uh, to mourn something that perhaps was close to many of us, our different ethnic and cultural and racial uh, affinities, um, while also opening up to what might come next. And mm-hmm. I, think, I, think, I think the anger uh, that is being deployed um, instead of the sorrow uh, and mourning that is required uh, makes it much less possible for us to move to what comes after the morning, uh, mm-hmm. which is the birth of something new. Instead, yeah. we're just left with this anger that seems to build and build and build. And and, and I guess the the character that represents a lot of that anger um, is Una's mother. Um, and one one thing I found fascinating about about her, so she uh, she is essentially. Uh, you know, and this is going to be a very reductive description, but like she's essentially sort of a uh pushing against this the sort of the the replacement let's say of uh what she considers her people white people by uh by people of color and sort of she is the one who is raging against the dying of the light but there's a kind of a parallel loss as well which you evoke at one moment which i found really fascinating and which did seem to be something that is not spoken about as much uh when we when we talk about these kind of um these kind of political movements, let's say, is that uh, you write that uh, she had lost the the belief, or she was losing the belief that that life was fair and would turn out for the best. Um, and I think that sort of, for me, that sort of added uh, ingredient, let's say, in uh, in her apprehension of the world, feels like it could be uh, a portal to a sort of a more empathetic understanding of. Uh, these people who are sort of afraid and who are raging, but who are not necessarily doing it out of pure pure hatred, but through a sense of uh, a sense of loss, as you described. Well, all over the world today, I think we are seeing a kind of uh, radicalization of the older generation, you know, by mm-hmm. the internet. Um, I see it in Pakistan too. Um, you know, people who are uh, seeing all the affronts happening towards Muslims all over the world, and uh, uh, and 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 view this constant stream of attacks, and also are looking at you know what seems to be the declining fortunes of so many countries, uh, mm-hmm. Pakistan among them, um, and 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 struggling to conceive of a better future that might also be plausible and possible. Uh, this is, I think, a, a worldwide phenomenon. And, uh, and I think the two get, go hand in hand, that um, uh, the, the raging against one's replacement uh, is, is occurring alongside an inability to imagine um, passing on and participating mm. in a story which is proceeding in a way that one can be inspired by. And so, um, and so, uh, in a sense, these these two um, aspects are really flip sides of one another. Mm-hmm. That um, one one 
needs to, I think, both acknowledge the profound sense of loss that many people are experiencing and also begin to articulate um, this more inclusive and yet promising vision of what could come next. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, that, that either one without the other is unlikely to, um, to move human culture uh, uh, in, in, in a progressive uh, uh, manner forward. Uh, and so, and so I, think, I think if we are to simply say, look, um, things will be better in the future and mm-hmm. uh, stop you know, moaning about your you know, racist and or bigoted and or uh, religious superiority or whatever thing that you believe to um, uh, be participating in. Um, that isn't enough. Uh, mm-hmm. and it's not enough to simply say, um, you know, one, one can understand the feeling of loss that people see when they see immigrants arrive in their neighborhoods or when they see their children marrying people of different backgrounds or when they see um, their uh, grandchildren and, and nephews and nieces becoming less well off than they were. Um, I think, I think that, uh, that, that, that the mourning and the dreaming sort of have to happen together. Mm. Uh, one of the mistakes that we make is to try to separate them, to imagine that there's only a task uh, of dreaming or only mm. a task of mourning that needs to happen when actually we need both. Yeah. And that, and, and that, and that task of mourning, um, in, uh, in a sense, and I'm, I'm going to sort of try and speak around it because I don't want to give away too much of the book, but it sort of it manifests itself through a societal crisis to uh, to a certain extent. And this is something I remember a similar sort of feeling while reading um, Exit West as well, was this sense of sort of there is a vision of a, of a changed, a perhaps improved world uh, being possible. But in order to get there, it seems there almost needs to be some sort of disruption. The society almost needs to to approach the brink of things coming apart um, completely. Would you say that is sort of that sort of uh, approach to disintegration or sort of flirting with disintegration in a way is part of the the mourning you described? Yes, I think that... um, uh... You know, if we imagine a human life as having both of these components, you know, a component of being born, of growing, and then also a component of aging, um, disintegrating, uh, Mm -hmm. ceasing to be, um, you know, those are things that we know uh, and understand to be part of human existence. Mm -hmm. I think what, what confuses us is when we try to write them upon the larger body of, of humanity mm. because instead of occupying discrete time periods, there's a time of being born and it's the time to die. Um, they're happening simultaneously that, that some people are entering into the last stages of their lives as mm. other people are, are beginning. And, mm. uh, and so we don't have the orderly um, uh, progression of a life. We have the simultaneous occurrence at the human scale of, of the extinguishing of one generation and, and, and the birth of a, of a new, the coming into adulthood of a new. And, um, and so how do, we, you know, how do we manage that? And in a sense, you know, we have historically managed that by, by creating a link between these generations, by mm-hmm. imagining that in some way this new generation uh, represents the coming to fruition of the dreams of the old generation um, or of their biological genes, you know, or of their ethnicity or of, 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 of their race or of their tribe. And, um, and it, it seems to me that um, if we are going to try to, uh, uh, to find alternatives to a tribal continuity, um, we, we need to reckon with uh, the challenges that that, uh, that, that implies. And mm-hmm. those challenges are both um, in a less tribal context, what makes possible um, a good death, you know, mm-hmm. what you die for, 
And what do we die for when we die at the end of our lives? Um, if it's no longer the tribe, if it's no longer yeah. our own children. Uh, and also, um, what is being born? And, uh, you know, what is the place in this new thing being born of, of the echoes of those who were here before? Mm-hmm. And, and these questions, I think, are questions that we have tried to address historically through our, our folk stories, through family, through tribe, through religion but which we now, in a world that we share, where people of different tribes and different religions or no religion uh, are cohabiting spaces, um, we, I think, require new modes um, of generating uh, stories to, to deal with this, narratives. Mm-hmm. This. And for me, you know, art is one of those ways that, mm-hmm. um, that, that one of the functions of, of art and of literature is, is to begin to craft this kind of um, shared human story which isn't denominated by tribe or by particular religious background but, but tries to nonetheless um, afford this connection between mm-hmm. the passing of one generation and the birth of the new that we can participate in and it's by, by definition a kind of imaginative project uh, imagining forward but it also has to be a deeply empathetic project, uh, mm-hmm. which tries to empathize with those who are losing. Uh, because unless it does both of those things, it isn't likely to be very effective. Mm-hmm. And that kind of invention of a new sort of way of apprehending the world as well seems seems very important um, to, to, to Anders at the moment. Because uh, one of the things I appreciate about very much about this book is that you you resist this, I guess, the... The sort of the what might be called the sort of religious or millenarial sort of um, uh, attraction to this idea of sort of everything will fall apart and there will be a there will be a final chaos or at a moment you know Anders is a little bit sort of taken in and he, he says you write that Anders thought he could feel the ancient horrors awakening could almost feel the forgotten savagery upon which the the sound the town was founded and like it it seems in a way that. Uh, because of the you know, the histories of our of our cultures, of our religions, of our societies, that in a way we're almost programmed to uh, to expect that if things break apart, rather than being reconfigured, they will be replaced with with chaos. And it feels quite a sort of an important message of the of the book, if that's not to be too uh, too reductive. That sort of that this this sense of chaos, which I think often particularly uh, sort of speculative literature sort of falls into is not a sort of a, a necessary uh, end to the the fracturing and the fragmenting of the status quo. Yes, it, it, it might not be. Um, and, and, but I think, I think that if it is not to be um, perhaps something more than passivity uh, will be required. Mm. In other words, uh, uh, I, I don't think that, if we just let things go, all will work out, out for the best. <laughs> I think I'm, I'm just about as apprehensive as everybody else who's very concerned about the state of the world right now. But, but I think that if we can imagine into being um, better ways of being, then those things do become possible, right? We, you can imagine uh, uh, a, a different world and you can imagine uh, different things. I mean, you, you, know, you, you take examples of, um, uh, you know, if you look at, at uh, uh, you know, Mandela's imagining of what could come after apartheid, mm-hmm. um, and you compare that with, you know, some of the literature coming out of South Africa by, by fantastic writers uh, of, of what could happen as it things, you know, fell apart. Mm-hmm. Um, it's clear that there's a power to, to that imagined vision. And, uh, and so I think at this moment, it becomes very interesting to engage in these projects of imagining. Um, also because I think one is being confronted by alternative projects that are profoundly nostalgic in their mm. very impulse. So, um, so it becomes, I think, um, for me personally, necessary to offer up imaginings that are not nostalgic. Uh, mm. I, think, I, think that, I think nostalgia doesn't serve us well um, at the end of things, uh, mm-hmm. it, it's entirely understandable and it is utterly attractive. Um, and yet because it is so grounded in our individual selves, 
um, it, it is not going to survive the end of the self. It doesn't really offer a solution to the end of the self. Uh, instead, something that transcends the self will be required. And um, uh, you cannot transcend the self backward, right? You're going to have to transcend the self forward in time. Um, you're going to have to participate in some imagining. And whether that, is, whether that imagining is, is your nation or your race or your religion or whatever, um, there has to be some uh, imaginative gesture. And, and for me, you know, um, stories and also love are two of the most fundamental ways in which we engage in that. And that love can be across generations, you know, a grandparent for their grandchild and, and being sustained by the idea that although you are going, this grandchild will come into adulthood and live their lives. Um, mm -hmm. And also, I think uh, alongside that, you know, um, uh, various forms of love, there's also also the various storytelling forms. So, so I, yeah, that's what I'm, I'm quite interested in both of these books, both Exit West and The Last White Man. Um, is is to, in a sense, um, venture into the fears of a particular kind of apocalypse, um, but suggest uh, ways to imagine out of that uh, into something that is is not actually apocalyptic. Well, that feels like the the perfect place on uh, which to leave it. Um, the Last White Man is, of course, available from uh, Shakespeare and Company, uh, from our bricks and mortar store, or from our website as well. We ship around the world. Uh, or, of course, you can pick it up at your local uh, independent bookstore, uh, wherever in the world that may be. Um, all that remains for me to say is, Mohsin Hamid, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Adam. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, it would be great if you could help us spread the word by reviewing or rating us in your favourite app, or just by sending the link to some of your friends. And don't forget, if you'd like even more from Shakespeare and Company, you can subscribe now through Apple or Patreon for just three euros a month. Production of this podcast is all done in-house here at Shakespeare and Company Paris. All music is by our resident jazz supremo, Alex Fryman, whose album Play It Gentle is available to buy or stream wherever you listen. I'll be back soon. Until then, take care and thanks again for listening.